Our scripture today comes from Psalm 126. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. For those who, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello again. My name is Eric. I'm the assistant pastor here at Ascension, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. And uh, we're going to be looking at the psalm that we just heard read, Psalm 126. Let me open us up and just begin by, by praying for us. Lord, this morning we recognize that we cannot understand your word unless it is revealed to us by you. We see that everything we have has come from you. You've set a path before us, but you are the one who will strengthen us to walk in it. You've put your word before us. You are the one who will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You call us to know you and walk with you, and you give us your spirit that we might relate to you. And in you, we might have life and life to the full. Pray that you would give that abundantly to us, O Lord, and speak to us this morning through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I was uh, paying for some coffee at a breakfast place uh, early in the morning, uh, earlier this week, and I got up to the counter where the cash register was to pay, and I noticed a sign uh, on a tip jar next to the cash register that said, tips are never expected, never in all caps, tips are never expected, but always appreciated. Never expected, but always appreciated. That seems like a pretty safe way to go through your life, don't you think? Never expecting all that much, but always appreciating it for uh, when anything good does happen. I think this person, whoever it was selling the coffee, has learned that if they minimize their expectations and they put that on the tip jar, then they can enjoy good when it comes, but they won't be too disappointed when they look down at the end of the day and, God forbid, just see the one dollar that they placed there in the morning to kind of lead people into tipping. You work hard. You work hard all day. You want to see more than a couple bucks in the tip jar, and yet... When we look down and it seems empty, we might think to ourselves, well, what was I expecting? I should, better I should adjust my expectations. Psalm 126 has a different style of tip jar, if I may stretch the analogy. Psalm 126 says, expect good fortune. For this psalm begins with, uh, with a memory. Our mouths were filled with laughter. This psalm begins with good fortune. 
The psalm acts, asks in the middle of it that this good fortune would be restored again. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And the psalm labors on with the assurance that good fortune will be restored. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. We are assured a good outcome, says Psalm 126. Expect a good end. And this is so counter to so much of our own labor. I know for myself, a lot of times I'm working hard. I'm laying at, awake at night, thinking through uh, what's going on, trying to keep everything in front of me. My labor, my work, call it a weeping labor, is to reroute uh, pro- potential problems, to troubleshoot uh, in advance of something going wrong, to do a sort of damage control over my own life and protect something from spiraling out of control. But Psalm 126 doesn't ask, what will you do when you fail? What will you do if, if, you, if you fail, if that thing you didn't think about happens? Instead, Psalm 126 says, what should I do since my success is certain that the outcome for a Christian is a mouth that is overflowing with giggles, with shouts of joy. With that outcome certain, what do I do? It starts in a couple ways of three, three applications for us from this text this morning. The first is this, we name the ache. This is the first thing that I think Psalm 126 does. It names the ache that is felt in the first couple verses. And just, just quickly, before I get to these first couple verses, I just want to set this psalm up with a confession from myself, a confession uh, that in my high school days, in my English and literature class, we just heard about that from the writing team, well, I was... Uh, uh, I was not really an all-star student in those classes, and uh, I don't quite remember much of what I read. I barely remember any poetry, any literature, any assignments. I remember one time a teacher handed me a book, The Scarlet Letter, and said, highlight what you don't understand. So I took a highlighter over the cover just to be like goofy and turn it in. Um, anyways, that was just my way of being at that time. Uh, But I do remember one lesson that I learned again and again and again over the course of these English classes. The lesson uh, was written in every book. It was reiterated every week. We had class discussions about this one topic. We discussed it in class. We wrote papers analyzing this topic, this one lesson, this one takeaway. And here is the lesson that I learned, and that is that every great author's life was terrible, was terrible. Biography after biography, blurb after blurb, it felt like a competition of walking tragedies between Emily Dickinson and Ernest Hemingway, who has this astonishingly bad life. Why is this the case? Why is it when we look at our world, some of the best, most lasting art has come from a horrible, sad life, often outside of the person's, even, even outside of their own control. This is because the best art pours out of the deepest ache. And that is what Psalm 126 is. It is a deep ache. 
you enjoyed, as I did, singing that song in worship earlier in the service, you felt something inside of you saying, I know this must be true, I'm weeping now, but the Lord will bring joy, that longing is spilling out of a deep ache that is rooted in this psalm. And it begins in the first verse, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And here the author refers to an extremely hard circumstance, an extremely hard life in which the people of Israel were released from a captivity from the kingdom of Babylon. This is probably what this psalm was written after. Babylon invaded Israel in a textbook pillaging, destroying their city and leading many of them through a 600-mile trek through the desert, back to the city of Babylon to live, relocated in a culture they did not understand. I don't think they gave them horses for that journey. And so the psalm is written at this restoration period, we think, when the people of Israel, 70 years after this captivity, begin to return by God's miracle, by his provision. They begin to return to Zion. That is Jerusalem. That is the city of David. And they walk into the rubble, the walls that have fallen down, the houses that are broken down, and yet their mouths are filled with laughter for what the Lord has done, something they remember their grandmother and their grandfather talking about 70 years ago, that long trek through the desert. Now they are witnessing God moving his people back into their land. And so from this joy, the psalm says, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongue with shouts of joy. The word spread to the nations all around them. The Lord has done great things for them. Yes, he has, and we are glad. How does this strike you when you read this? Don't you read this and feel this ache and feel this longing almost to return to the dream? And I read this psalm, I feel like I want to say, I don't want to wake up from this trance-like description, this ecstasy, this joy. I mean, they are giggling, I think, would be the technical definition of what they are doing as they rejoice in what God has done. And don't we want this? Don't we long for this too? And yet, don't we just keep this a little bit away from us? Just a little bit at arm's length. Because a mouth filled with laughter or, or giggling over, that's always appreciated, but it's never expected. And after all, you read the verses, we're talking about something in the past, aren't we? When, then, that was then, that was when. The film uh, Hook came out in 1991. Sorry for however that makes you feel. Some of you haven't seen it. The movie Hook is about a grown-up Peter Pan who returns to Neverland to rescue his children from Captain Hook. This should be easy. Peter Pan always gets the best of Captain Hook. In this movie, uh, Peter Pan's played by Robin Williams, and there's just one problem. Peter doesn't know who he is. He spent so much time as an adult growing up 
that he's lost all of his powers. He almost kills Tinkerbell because he says, I don't believe in fairies. He can't fly because he can't think of a single happy thought. But he needs to rescue his children, so he begins training to be like Peter Pan again. And all of his bumbling and fumbling through this fairy tale land, which Robin Williams does so well, comes to a head after a long day of training to be Peter Pan. Peter sits down with the Lost Boys at this huge table, steaming with plates and bowls and cups, a feast laid out for all of them in their big tree to gather around and eat. And what you see as you're watching the movie is both funny and heartbreaking at the same time. You see the lost boys digging in to eat from this feast. They're lifting pots, the, the lids off pots. They're digging in. They're, it's a flurry of activity. Everyone looks like they're eating, and then the camera starts to show, slow down. And it's very funny to see that these kids are like munching on pretend food and they're not even doing that good of a job at it, like they kind of set up for a burger and, you know. And Robin Williams, Peter Pan's just looking around like, what is happening? What is going on? And they tell him, you need to believe that the food is here. And it's, 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 it's hilarious for us to watch him be disconnected from the feast, but it's also a tragedy as we watch it. Because don't we feel the same ache as Peter? We want to be at the table with our friends. We want to be who we are. We want to sit down at the feast with the, with the hot food and the delicious spread before us and begin to take it in. But so often we have this ache, we have this desire to want to be there and we lift the lid off the pot and it's empty. Steam comes out and there's nothing there. And so like Peter, we begin to disassociate. We just detach ourselves from that to say there couldn't even be any food at that table. I don't know what they're experiencing, but I've had my ache cut short enough times where I don't even see it anymore. It's as if it's a fairy tale and it's a fantasy land because we're afraid if we pick the lid off and we reveal for what this is, it will turn out to be empty. And yet, the scriptures all over and everywhere expect for us to ache for our fortunes to turn. The scriptures everywhere speak to the longings of our hearts. But we have to be willing to name this ache, to name the desire that we have to recognize a holy discontentment that is within us, to see our fortunes restored and name it out loud before the Lord because we already have a sure outcome, friends, that he who goes out weeping will come home with shouts of joy. Those who are aching to have their fortunes restored will see them restored. And yet so often, I think we're like kids asking our parents for a trampoline or something. We want this toy. We want this new thing. We'd like to have this, but in the back of our minds when we're little, we know, ah, Mom and Dad, probably, we, I don't think we can afford it this year. I'm not sure quite where it would fit in the yard. Maybe I'd get hurt on it. And we just layer and layer these reasons not to voice the aches we have to those closest to us. And that spills over into our relationship with God that as years go by, we've just 
kept at arm's length, these aches that we felt that we've longed to bring before the Lord, but, but have not had the courage or for whatever reason have felt like this, this would not happen. We've wanted a certain fulfillment from life, but we're telling ourselves it probably won't come true. What are these aches for you? Maybe a career we thought would turn out differently. That's generic, but it also relates to almost all of us who have spent any time in any field. I thought this might go a different way. What about our ache for our kids to respond to us? So often the non-response, the not seeming to learn or, or care or change about trying to connect with a friend, longing for friendship, but they don't seem like they care. They're disappearing again and again away from you. Or what about our own inherent family issues? We keep trying to be better, to listen to one another and meet in the middle, but nothing seems to change. Does anything ever change? These are the aches, and some of you are probably incredible poets in waiting because of the depth of the ache that you have experienced. When we read Psalm 126, it sounds like it's from Neverland. It sounds like a fairy tale. But we have the full psalm before us. We have the whole picture that those who go out weeping, even with their aches, they will bring home shouts of joy. And so Psalm 126 invites us to name our aches, to say out loud our desires before the Lord, to say, I'm tired of stuffing this down. This is what I want, Lord. Because if we knew that in the end, and we do know the Lord is going to bring all the exiles back into shouts of joy into his kingdom. We wouldn't be ashamed to have the aches for that that we have. We'd feel the ache deep within us and we'd respond not by pushing it aside, but by bringing it to the Lord. We wouldn't be afraid to put it into words. And that's what this psalm does for us as it begins. This leads to the second point, and that is don't be afraid to ask. We have the ache, but we don't stop there. We're not afraid to ask. The psalmist in Psalm 126 comes right out and says it in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Here's the ask, the, the plea, the prayer. It's to restore our fortunes. It's the same words as verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. It's saying, do it again, Lord. And, and why are they asking in this moment for the Lord to do this again? Haven't they already been brought back from captivity? Well, we know from our own lives, from our own nation's history, and from the history of the world that wars and traumatic events, they do not end whenever the date of them ends. They might be over, but the fallout continues for years to come. And the people of Israel are back in their city, but they're reconciling with family members who are no longer with them, 
with a city in many places reduced to rubble. They're recognizing what does it mean to be an Israelite in this time after I lived, I grew up in Babylon. What does it mean for the generation that was born and died and never came back? What do all these things mean? And so in verse 4 they say, Restore it again, Lord. We're overflowing with the joy of what you've done, and yet we recognize this is not complete yet. And in this verse, there's a reference to this word, not very commonly used in our conversation. Can't say this has come up in our small group at all this semester. The Negeb. This is the Southlands. This is, this is the desert, the wilderness south of Israel. It could be irrigated by a monsoon or a rainstorm. Sound familiar, right? But, uh, but otherwise, it was just going to lie there as a desert. And, and, and last year, we um, rented a cabin for a few days near Flagstaff, and it was on a lake, and the lake was very low water-wise. There was probably a couple yards that you could walk on this dirt that was dry and parched and cracking like veins all along the surface of the land. And it was strange as I stepped with my feet across that dried out mud to get to the lake to think that water had ever been there. So dry it was. This is the Negev. It's beyond parched and cracked. If water does not flow there, it will just keep being dust. And so they say, this is us. We are the desolate ones. We are the barren ones. Restore us with your water, Lord, like streams in the wilderness. And this request in verse 4 puts us in an interesting place as Christians. I heard a teacher of mine one time use the phrase that we are between request and response. That the place we are in as Christians is always between request and response. That is the request, Lord, restore our fortunes, and that space between God's response, His power, His timing, His will, His ability, His desire, His response. So often we are in that space, are we not? Maybe repeating our request, but lingering. How long will this space take before the Lord responds? That defines where the psalmist is in muttering verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And we, like him, must not be afraid to be in the place between request and response. We must ask for what our ache is telling us. We must ask God to change things. And uh, just for fun this morning, I'd like to see what would you, what would you do what would you do if you sat down in the morning and you were reading your Bible? Have you ever done this? This is kind of crazy, but it used to be something people would talk about, maybe. You open your Bible and you like go, you know, you point to a verse and that's going to be wherever you lead. Like whatever page it opens on, wherever my finger falls, that's my verse for the day. And it just says something crazy. You're like, well, this is probably not an efficient way to read the Bible. Uh, what, if, what if tomorrow you did that? You opened your Bible and, and you turned on accident, not intentionally, to Psalm 126. And your finger, just by sheer happenstance, landed on verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Would you be afraid to pray that? Would you be excited to pray that? 
What would be your thinking as you look at that? Would you try the exercise again, or would you be willing to dig into that verse? Because Psalm 126 is is under the understanding that, that God restores the fortune. And if God restores the fortune, then I'm going to go to the front of the line to ask Him. This is the ultimate, oh, I know a guy, right? God is the one who makes people glad. The nations around them know it. They know it. And God is the one who has the goods. So we should ask Him. But I think for a lot of us, if we flipped to verse 4, I don't know how we'd feel about praying that. Maybe we wouldn't even ask. Maybe we're afraid, theologically or spiritually in some sense, to mess it up, to ask for something that's too big. We've all seen preachers on TV offering a, a life of luxury for those who, uh, who ask for it. So we don't want to be like that, but frankly... I've had to tell myself sometimes, that's a little bit of a cop-out, isn't it? To not pray verse 4 because you think, well, I'm thinking of a Ferrari. That's not what Psalm 126 is talking about. It's talking about a barren wasteland begging for water. Make it as you made it before, Lord. Restore our fortunes. I don't know if we have the courage to ask Maybe we think that God will be stern towards us. Why did you ask that? Maybe we think he's like some big silver supercomputer. He's already got the algorithm planned out. I can't change anything at this point. Maybe God's angry with me because I don't pray long enough or often enough. Or maybe he's got another idea in mind. Maybe I've already overstayed my welcome in God's house. All these preconceptions that we don't even realize we have about God, just layer by layer, stopping us from praying verse 4. We talk ourselves out of it all the time. The expectation in Scripture is never, is, 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 the expectation in Scripture is always that people, that God's people will ask Him for what they're looking for. And there are dramatic examples. You think of Abraham pleading with God to preserve the city of Sodom. If you know the story, Abraham says, God, if you find 50 righteous, okay, 45. Okay, 20. Okay, 10. Down and down he goes, bartering with God, pleading with God to preserve this city. Or you think of maybe Hannah. We, we sing uh, Hannah's song during Advent. Uh, a woman who has not had children yet, crying out to God to give her a child. She goes to the temple to pray. And the scripture says, there are no words coming from her lips. It is as if her heart is literally beating out the prayer and her lips are moving without sound. So much so that the priest says, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And what's Hannah's response? I am not drunk. I haven't had wine or strong drink. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Think of David in Psalm 51. This verse has always struck me. After David commits adultery with Bathsheba, he prays this psalm of repentance. It's an incredible uh, piece of repentance. And he says this one line in it, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That's insane to say that to God. I think I am just struck by that. That he would say, Lord, forgive me, restore me, bring me salvation, and I'll I'll teach others to follow you. That is so bold. And, And it comes from a heart that yearns for God to move into the ache, into the ask, and to see the Lord restore the fortunes. Just like Abraham and Hannah and David, almost to the state of like, begging and bartering with God, so fervent are they in submitting themselves to the Lord and bringing Him their ask. And it doesn't really matter how we might feel about doing that to God, right? I mean, we might be uncomfortable, but that's not the real question. (laughs) The real question is, what's God's response to that? How would God respond to something like that? How does God respond to to a Hannah and to a David today who would say those things? I think we know how he would respond. We know because Jesus himself tells his disciples when they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. He gives them the Lord's prayer. And then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He says, he gives them this story. I was just say this very briefly. I think it's important to hear these words of Christ. He says to them, after teaching them to pray, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. It's midnight. That's late. Hopefully I've been in bed for three hours by then. So I don't know if I'm going to give you any bread. But the friend, the person that knocks on the door and asks for the bread and says, a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. The friend answers from within, do not bother me. The door is shut. My children are in bed. I cannot get up. I cannot give you anything. Here's Jesus talking. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. That's that's almost cold. Not on the basis of friendship is this guy about to give him bread. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him what he needs. That's the spirit of impudence that Jesus gives his disciples to ask the Lord. Can we hear this? The disciples say, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, knock loud and keep knocking. I don't care what time it is. And Jesus just keeps on going. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And we have to admit that the the expectation in the scriptures is never that we would stand before God and he would say, why did you ask for that? Why did you ask for that? It's not the expectation in the scriptures. The expectation again and again is that he would say, my child, why did you never ask Not in a shaming way, in a loving way that communicates, why did you not ask? Why would you not bring that to me? I want to know about that. 
I want to know about that. And so can we set aside our presupposition that we are somehow inconveniencing God when we approach Him with our longings? We are the parched and dry ground pleading for a restored fortune. And we know the God who holds all outcomes in His hand has already tipped His hand and told us those who go out weeping will come home with shouts of joy. When you have your ask, the Scriptures say, fire away. And God might say, no. Said it to me many times. But I can tell you that we are a people who trust that the outcome is still certain. Your fortune will be restored. And you may not even know how the Lord is answering your ask. You might say to him, God, help me to get this promotion. And he might want to tell you, my child, you want that, but you also want another milestone that marks you've arrived. And I want you to know you're right where you need to be. God answering the ache, answering the ask with what's underneath, giving us with what we're really longing for. Lord, help my children to obey. My child, trust in my protection. Lord, take this addiction from me. My child, I want you to know that my grace is sufficient for you. That's all-encompassing fortune. God either satisfies the ache that we bring to him or he leads us closer to himself where we are less and he is enough in a way that eliminates the ache altogether. Here's the third and final point this morning is that as the psalm promises our outcome is assured, assured we ought to labor with assurance. Labor with assurance. Psalm 126 asks us, what would you do if the outcome was certain? If we knew what the outcome was and we were certain it would happen, I really think we'd work for it. We'd go all in, even in the tears, knowing that the Lord will bring even the efforts that we do that seem to fail to his glory when he brings shouts of joy. In the television show that's very old now uh, as well, like Hook, uh, called Band of Brothers, uh, famous show, I'm guessing most of you, have, a lot of you have seen it, uh, an incredible, incredible uh, show. Uh, there's one scene in that TV series that really captured my attention when we watched it, and um, it tells of a, of a company of men um, in World War II um, and, and the different uh, battles that they face, and there's one scene where two soldiers are walking together at night, and they couldn't be more different. One soldier is shaking, holding his rifle, his boyish in the face. He's scared. He's jumping at every sound. The other soldier is Lieutenant, Lieutenant Spears, strong, confident, the type of man that everyone is telling stories about, his charging into battle, and they don't know how he emerged unscathed. 
And the fearful soldier with the boyish face, he confesses that when he first landed, when he dropped in his parachute from the plane to land, he was separated from the rest of his soldiers. And he confesses to the lieutenant, I I hid in a ditch and I fell asleep. I didn't look for the rest of my company. I hid in a ditch and I fell asleep. And the lieutenant asks him, do you know why you hid in that ditch? The man mumbles, I was scared. The lieutenant says to him, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have to accept is that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you can function as a soldier is meant to function. It's a hard saying, but when I saw that scene, it just full stopped to me because here is the idea. For every soldier on that battlefield, there is but one certainty. Death. He will probably die. And this outcome can have two effects. It can make a soldier lie down in a ditch and try to make his life last as long as possible, to to squeeze as much out of it as possible, or that certain outcome can make someone stand up on a battlefield, even though their face is wet with tears for those who have died next to him, and in the face of the certain outcome, squeeze all the life that is left in the remaining minutes. In other words, the outcome's the same for the two soldiers. This one of them is not trying to die. The other one is trying to live. And by accepting this certain outcome, Lieutenant Spears is actually able to squeeze everything and function as he ought to function in leading and fighting because the outcome is predetermined and he gives himself over to what is in front of him. Well, Blythe has not accepted this probable outcome and will spend his days trying not to die instead of proving to be a hero when he needs to be. And you might say, this is very heavy. What does a battlefield and death have to do with our lives? And yet, this is how the psalm describes us, is it not? In verses 5 and 6, we are described as those who sow in tears. They that go out weeping. This is not a pretty picture. Friends, we are engaged in a weeping work. There is no map for this weeping work. There is no map for getting far into a career and feeling like you have nothing to show for it. How did I just turn 40 and this is where I am? It's a weeping work to feel as though you've had the same argument in your marriage every week for the last five years. You could probably play the role of the other person in the conflict or run it through an AI generator. It's just been the same. It's a weeping work to try to relate to God and feel like He is distant. It is a weeping work to work out the complications that we have with our own parents, with our own siblings, and with our own relationship with God and how we react at work and to our friends. And all these things can feel so big and beyond what we could ever grapple with. And this is a weeping work. 
And if we're being honest, there is no out. There is really no out. We are like the soldier Blythe, laying in the ditch. And the world is quick, so quick to offer half measures that never get to the root of the problem. The world is quick to say, you're involved in a weeping work? Well, here's how you can get more sleep. Here's how you can do a diet that doesn't make you tired. Have you stopped crying yet? Here's how to take a vacation and ask for the time you want off. Here's how to get what you really want out of sex. Have you stopped crying yet? Here are some new wines to try. Here's a job where you can work from home. Here's a way to manage your money and finally be free. Have you stopped crying yet? But the scriptures say, if you're alive then you're engaged in some sort of weeping work. For the Scriptures do not say, stop sowing until you can stop weeping. Take a break until the tears stop, but rather the Scriptures assume that the tears will still fall and the work will still happen. The Scriptures assume that both the weeping and the work will continue because the outcome of joy is assured. So friends, while the weeping work isn't going anywhere, neither is the promise of hope and restored fortunes. For there is no denying these words of our God. They are stated as pure fact. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Geese fly, fish swim, and those who weep shall have their good fortunes restored. That's the hope we have as Christians. We can accept this certain outcome. And you might say, I I see that Psalm 126 says this, that I'll have joy, but all the aches that I've been through, how can I be assured? How can this be? How can you say you get everything in the end will work out and God will just make it happen? I don't know how to walk in this assurance. We must, like the lieutenant, accept the fact that we are already dead with Christ and that we are risen with Him. The Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Friends, were it not for Christ we would have no hope of this weeping work ever resulting in an outcome of joy. But because of Christ, we know that as He was, we will be. We see the aches, we see the asks, we see the sufferings of Christ in a moment. We'll sing, man of sorrows, Christ was known for His weeping work. We recognize that. We we get that. Friends, the gospel is that we will be like He is now shouting with joy for all eternity at the restored fortunes of God. For if we are united with Him in His death, we will be united with Him in His resurrection to join His final abiding and unchanging good end. This is the promise for us this morning who are still weeping as we work. 
Let this be our faith in action, that we labor as those who are assured of the final outcome we already have in Christ. He is the first fruit of the harvest that God will bring when many of us rise to praise the Lord at what He has done. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing together again. Lord, we need Your help in so many ways. I I think of how far we are from even being in touch with what we're aching for, being able to ask, and being able to be assured that you will do it, Lord. Would you please comfort us this morning in our longings and uh, be near to us, O God. Help us to have an act of faith that is able to keep going even when it's difficult, knowing that one day we will be like Christ, that our outcome is assured. Would this please motivate us for a life of faith in him? In Christ's name we pray, amen.